0: Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. This week's guest on In Her Room is Camille Greep. Raised under the wide-open skies of Montana, Camille brings this wide-eyed perspective to her work, both as a writer and an editor. Whether she is writing speculative fiction or reading manuscripts for a future issue of Easy Street, Camille brings her keen vision and clear sense of story. Her debut novel, Letters to Zell*, was published in July 2015 by 47 North Publishers. Camille, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you, Sarah. It's my pleasure. I'm really excited to talk to you today.
0: I'm so glad that we had a chance to connect at AWP and uh, find the time to sit down and talk. I'm really excited to talk about your new book, Letters to Zell, as well as speculative fiction, your work as an editor at a couple of literary journals, and um, lots of other things. So to start off, I'd love to know, what is writing to you?
1: Well, I'm glad that you started with an easy question. Wow. writing to me is getting the the constant sort of uh, voice narrative even that runs in my head uh, outside of my body. Um, And I know that that sounds uh, maybe a a little bit uh, mystical or uh, strange, but I think uh, for me, writing... Gives a voice to all the things that we don't have time for in the day to day. You know, it's interesting. I think perhaps one of the most, uh, one of the best sort of examples of uh, what I'm trying to talk about is uh, the Nosgard's autofiction uh, craze that is out right now, because we have. This minutiae, and we deal with it in all these ways that we feel are unique to ourselves. But then when we write uh, and we give that writing to others, and others say, Oh, I feel that too, then we're connected in a way that brings us out of ourselves. And to me, that's really what
0: writing is all about. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think also. The ways that, not just we connect with others, but we connect with parts of ourselves that we might not always access or remember exist, um, and to give space for those voices and those thoughts. Um, for yeah, sure. Definitely.
1: I am. Um, I was in a class a few years ago, and uh, the the professor. Had- was talking about how things that are bothering us always come out in our writing, even if we don't recognize them, whether it's, you know, a relationship issue or, um, you know, your pet or, you know, whatever it, it sort of comes out. She was in a group where all the stories were about failed relationships. And finally, one of the, people at the group asked the writer if everything was okay and she was really surprised that everybody had picked up on this because sometimes we you know we, we dump things into our writing that uh, we don't even know we're accessing so
0: it's fascinating. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Well I want to dive right into talking about your new novel it's called Letters to Zell. it came out in July and I had a chance to read the book before we sat down to talk, and I just want to say that I loved it, both the um, the subject and the way that you approached the conversation of the characters involved, as well as the form that you took. Um, and so tell us a little about how you came to write this book.
1: Well, I was in the middle of writing a bunch of short work. Um, My, uh, I had had an illness in the family and really hadn't given a lot of concentration to settling down with a novel. And the novel that I had been working on before this was a really lighthearted sort of middle grade project. And uh, after that family member passed away, I, um, wanted to write about adults. (laughs) Um, I just didn't have the bandwidth to write about kids uh, at that point. And so, um, I was reading a lot about, uh, you know, loss and I was reading a lot about family and, uh, I ran across uh, Pamela Ribone's book um, called You Take It From Here. And the the book is written in a big, long letter, uh, basically from a best friend uh, to uh, her best friend's daughter. The the best friend in the book uh, passes away from cancer. And I, I really loved the book. And it was one of those books that you read and you tell everybody you care about, you have to go read this right now and you know, to an obsessive point. And so a couple of things happened at that point. I thought, wow, I wanna write a book that is about friendship and about loss and about you know, parents and about all of these things at once. Um, and I also uh, started thinking about letters and how important they'd been in my life um, I graduated from college in 99 and um, that we had email, but we didn't use it to communicate. So basically throughout all my high school and college years, um, we wrote letters to each other during the summer to keep in touch. And I worked at a really remote camp um, in the mountains of Montana. We got mail three times a week. And those letters were so important to me. And I sat down and I, I took the boxes out of these letters and I read through them. And I was like, I'm going to write a book of letters. And so I don't know when the fairy tale aspect of things came in. Um, that was actually the last, uh, the last piece of the puzzle. Um, you know, working with fairy tales is so... Wonderful because you can really concentrate on the characters. In Grimland, where uh, my novel sort of takes place when they are not in Los Angeles, in Grimland, everything is perfect. Um, you don't have to do a lot of world building. Life is easy for them there. And so I can really put the full spotlight on the characters themselves um, because it's a character-driven book. And, uh, you know, so it's, it was an interesting, you know, it was an interesting process.
0: Mm, absolutely. And your book centers on four fairly well-known fairy tale characters, um, Snow White, Cinderella, uh, Princess Aurora, Briar Rose, Sleeping Beauty, and Rapunzel. And, I'm curious how you chose those four specific characters to be the core of this novel. I
1: chose uh, the four characters based on uh, what I felt were the similarity of their narratives uh, and mostly based on the similarity of where they ended up at the end of their grim fairy tales. Um, I wanted to work in the dark space uh, that's left after the fairy tales are finished. I didn't want to so much retell their stories as work with what had already been told and work within the concept of their fates have, you know, they've completed all the tasks that they need to complete. And now, you know, for eternity, they're just sort of sitting here. And, um, you know, with society and the media telling us as women you know here is the pinnacle well what happens when you when you get there so uh, because these four women had uh, had ended up there after uh, similar experiences with parents except I mean except for sleeping beauty um, she has kind of an opposite parent problem um, but you know issues with parents and you know, Sort of, you know, they all have these romances that are, you know, fraught with obstacles. Uh, I really wanted them to be at similar starting points when we set out of the gate in the book. So that when uh, Rapunzel, who we learn at the beginning of the book, uh, leaves them, leaves the group, uh, that they are all left standing in wonder because. Basically, they they feel that their situations are similar. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. And really, this book is about so much more than re-examining fairy tales. It is, as you said, about, you know, what happens when we reach that point that is supposed to be our pinnacle, whether it's Um, As women, having a family and bearing and raising children, or um, having a successful career, or even just um, completing a project, you know, as writers, maybe it's having our first book published. Um, This is really an examination of, are we stuck in that? Can we move out of that? How do we move forward from there? How do we create something new and something that's our own? And I think it's a conversation that your characters have um, really strongly and really gives the reader a lot of opportunities to pause and think and reflect on their own life and where they're going and what they really want to be doing.
1: I wrote this book, you know, it was not, I didn't start it that long, maybe a year after I had uh, you know, sort of taking my sabbatical and I had a lot of friends, um, you know, and this seems to be pretty pervasive in our mid thirties that sort of are in the middle of these, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with my life? Um, am I doing the right things? Am I the right person? Am I the person that I wanted to be? um, and for some of my friends, uh, I think it was strange. And, and this is sort of, you know, life imitates art in, in some ways. It was strange that I would just, you know, kind of quit my job. <laughs> and, you know, uh, when you've got a good thing going. Uh, my partner, Adam, his his parents, for example, uh, were just baffled (laughs) why I would give up a good paying job to make art. Um, And I I understand where they're coming from, I mean, in, you know, in the world that they grew up in, you know, the Midwest hardworking, you know, loyal to the company uh, frame of reference, it's ridiculous. But, um, you know, (laughs) finally now I'm able to show them that, you know, I wasn't just, you know, Mm -hmm. I didn't just quit to paint my nails.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned, um, quitting your job to make art and you came out of many years of corporate writing and writing in major industry and transitioned into the creative world, um, working as a writer and also working as an editor at literary magazines. How did you ultimately make that decision?
1: Well, the decision, I made it a long, long time ago. But um, as with most of us, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't independently wealthy. I did not have a, sadly, no, nobody left me a trust fund. So um, I when I graduated from college, I wanted to start writing right off the bat. Um, But I didn't have any money and I didn't have any job and I had a lot of student loans. And so I did what a lot of us decide to do is to go to grad school. So I made it into a program uh, at Berkeley, which was a a joint program uh, between Berkeley and the Graduate Theological Union because I wanted to study science and faith and literature. And uh, I enrolled and I moved and... (laughs) I got to the financial aid, uh, seminar and they handed me the piece of paper with how much money I would owe them. And I, uh, I deferred my, my year, my first year and decided to work instead. (laughs) Um, I was just terrified of the debt because I, I really had zero concept of money or responsibility. Um, College was really sheltered for me, and that was that was good in some ways and bad in others but um, real life was kind of a surprise, so I decided that I was going to work and so I started uh doing some marketing um which included a lot of you know a lot of peer copy a lot of manual writing. Uh, things like that. I was living in San Francisco still, so it was, you know, sort of the end of the tech boom, and um, unfortunately, marketing in San Francisco in the tech boom uh, did not really make enough money to stay there, so I headed back to Montana and sort of did a reboot, Um, but I just, uh, you know, I kept writing more, uh, you know, in terms of a business. I think that this is what every, you know, creative writing English major can say is that writing will always keep you in a job. Um, And it kept me paid and fed uh, for about 11 years. Um, And by that time, we were uh, living here in Seattle. And uh, I was working for JP Morgan Chase after the big financial sector fallout, and I was still writing on a storm, but my creative writing had really slowed to a trickle, and I was starting to have the sort of conversations with myself that were like, well, I guess if you never, you know, if you never write, I guess that could be okay, right, you know, and they weren't comfortable conversations to have, but I had sort of shut down that internal narrative I was telling you about, because I just I couldn't stand to hear it when I was writing about you know economic conditions in San Diego. <laughs> I didn't uh, I didn't know how to have both of those things coexisting because it felt so bad. Um, so things kind of were still in a lull uh, in 2011 um, when I finally made the decision to quit and. Um, It was an easy decision thanks to, you know, my partner who I had warned back, you know, when we started dating that someday I was going to quit my job and write. And so, um, you know, luckily we had, you know, both been working long enough to where, you know, we had kind of tried to get some padding financially. I'm really, really, really fortunate that I'm able to, you know, I was able to take a couple years uh, to start making money. And, um, you know, that I've been, I, I know that, you know, it's a dream situation for a lot of people mm-hmm. and I'm very cognizant of how fortunate I am, and, you know, being able to have, you know, to spend all your time on it, you know, it, it makes things a lot easier.
0: Mm-hmm. You, in addition to spending your time writing, also uh serve as senior editor for the Lasco Review and Managing Editor for Easy Street magazine. Um and I'd love to hear a little bit about both of those. Sure. Um
1: I joined the LASCO review in 2013. Uh after winning uh their flash fiction contest. Um I enjoyed so much the correspondence that I had with the editorial staff after I had one that I I wrote them a letter and told them that if someday ne- they needed a volunteer that I would I would like to volunteer, and part of that was because um, I wanted to fill up all of the time that I had been granted. You know, I have. A little, you know, not <laughs> a not insignificant amount of guilt that I uh, am able to, you know, write full time. So I, I, wanted to make sure that I was doing everything that I could to learn about writing and to give back to the writing community. And it's it's not that you know a journal is like a nonprofit, but it is, you know, a good way. Um, my time at Lascaux was a great way to sort of learn how a magazine, you know, works in terms of the submissions process, Uh, I think you hear it again and again, but everybody should work in a magazine, uh, at least as a reader, because you'll never see submissions and rejections the same way once you've been behind the curtain. Um, You know, it's never, it's never personal, and it's, you know, it's kind of all love back there.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: you know, we're all, you, you know, we're all rooting for everyone to succeed. Um, it's not, you know, some, at least at Lasco, it's not some, you know, giant teardown session. You know, where we're belittling everybody's straight comments. Um, <laughs> we started Easy Street at the beginning of this year. Lesko is a beautiful little magazine, um, and it's very traditional in the prose and poetry and uh, essays that it publishes. Um, You know, it's really a true literary magazine at heart. Easy Street. We wanted a place to put everything else. Where do you put the essay that's not, you know, that's really interesting but still not quite, you know, it's not quite a literary essay. traditional creative nonfiction. Um, where do we put our book reviews? And, you know, where do we put our staff polls and our interviews and, and things? And so Easy Street has sort of grown up around this idea that, you know, of being a grab bag of, of everything else amazing that we want to be able to introduce to our friends and readers and contributors. Um, I'm really, really excited. We just added... Four new staff uh, this last month, and um, so we're growing, and it's you know it's really exciting, and I'm really proud of the content that we've created. We have several really interesting columns. Um, one column is uh, done by uh, a gentleman named Emil DeWeaver, who's an inmate at San Quentin, and uh, he is an amazing writer, and uh, we met him through the Lasco Review. And uh, he's doing really, really great work, and it's been just a, an amazing relationship uh, to cultivate with him. Um, interviews of poets and writers and thinkers, and you know, I'm just really excited about the direction it's
0: going. Mm. Hmm. I want to come back to your book, um, and start by asking if you might read something from it. Sure.
1: I'm going to read um I'm going to start with with the second letter uh in the book, which is uh from Snow White uh, who was definitely the the funnest character to <laughs> to write um she's sort of a... my best friend described her as the woman who's not afraid to take up space in a room mm. And <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think that that's about the best introduction that I can give her. Important fucking correspondence from Snow B. White. Onyx Manor, West Road, Grimland. Z. You silly bitch. First, you made us read The Cake and the Damned for Book Club, just because those glittering, gallivanting Glindas did. And then you couldn't even bother to show up. We all gathered at your favorite fru-fru bar, and you didn't come. You sent a note. I'd addressed your epistle line by line, but I got a little carried away and burned it with one of DJ's ridiculous ambiance candles. We had to get your address from fairy Records. So DJ drops the note on the table and Cece reads it to us. Everything seems too loud, especially DJ's choice in, mu- in music. I say to him, hey, can you turn that ear-splitting dubstep shit off? Why didn't you say so, he sings. Everybody likes house music anyways. He flutters his fingers and the volume goes up on something equally reprehensible. At a table over in the corner, a half dozen voices start to squeal. We love this song! There isn't enough port in my glass. In fact, there isn't any port in my glass, so I wave it in the air. the universal signal for more. But DJ is too busy showing off his dance moves. If he's going to convince Grimland he's a highfalutin sommelier instead of a barkeep like generations of Demi Johns before him, he's going to have to make some changes within, in his repertoire. Patronizing as usual, CC motions to my glass and says, careful with that stuff, it makes you obnoxious. What's your excuse then? Rory arranges her petticoats and clears her throat. Ladies, this always happens at book club. Someone starts talking about something else and we never discuss the story. Perhaps we can talk about The Cake and the Damned? Fine, I say. This pandering dribble is the single worst piece of literature I've ever had the misfortune to lay eyes on. It is in fact so abominable, I fear I've been mentally impaired by reading it. I wish you had been, there, Zell, so I could have thrown the book at you. Instead, I slam it on the bar for emphasis. Rory jumps off her stool because she's strung tighter than a cheap harpsichord. She spilled her wine and Cece's wine, and so now we're all out of wine, and I suggest Rory try drinking a little more frequently, you know, for her nerves. Cece is not finished being sarcastic. Okay, Bianca, tell us how you really feel about the book. Do you have any specific complaints? Asks Rory in a timid little mouse voice. Nobody wants to read shit like this. It isn't how life works. There's no such thing as true love and soulmates and perfect perfection. My ass. Love isn't anything like this. Life isn't anything like this. What is this author thinking? We are the fairy tale. We know better. At this point, I pause to inquire of anyone who will listen as to whether DJ is still serving alcohol at this particular establishment. Rory seizes the moment to argue with me. Maybe in this person's experience, love was magical. Magic has nothing to do with it, I tell her. A relationship should be based on mutual interests, trust, friendship. Come on, Cece, back me up here. In the book, Rory insists, Star wanted Sabian to love her. She just didn't know it yet. I can't comprehend how she can possibly be so naive. It's irresponsible storytelling. Love can certainly include the occasional experimental romp in handkerchiefs or playful smack on the behind with a riding crop, but it doesn't involve isolation and belittlement. Star is already worthy of Sabian. What does she have to reinvent herself for? Maybe she wants to change, Rory mumbles. You said yourself love is compromise. I meant eating your eggs scrambled instead of poached on Wednesdays and Saturdays, not giving up everything you are and becoming someone else. What kind of love is that to want rory squirms in her seat and Cece frowns i continue reminding them that none of our parents had healthy relationships and at the very least we should attempt to learn from their abysmal examples after my mom died my dad immediately traipsed out to find another woman one so obsessed with herself she tried to kill me and look at your parents though Your father was so eager to regain your mother's approval that he traded you for a bunch of goddamn lettuce. Those weren't relationships based on true love. I'm half tempted to go outside and ask this author just what her malfunction is. If this literature is the future of human imagination, we fairy tales are seriously fucked. DJ mercifully sails over with more wine and I grab him by his velour collar. You have to put something else on the speakers. Oh, honey, he sighs at me. Do you object to all popular music or just happiness in general? Anything else, okay? I'm trying to be reasonable here. A moment later, something slower, yet still strange and cacophonous floats over our heads. Sometimes I think DJ's ability to run human electronics with magic is useful. The blender, for instance, has its advantages, but often I want to throw that CD player into the frog pond I start to say something, but he levels a long jeweled finger at me. You asked for anything else, sister, so zip it. And I do zip it, because I remember it's your fault we aren't at shambles listening to rock and roll or at ma kettles sucking down those dastardly cars everyone's so scared of. But I'm getting distracted. Back to the book. Cece says, for maybe the first time ever, I think Bianca has a point. Both Rory and I struggle to stare in our stools. You do, I cough? She nods. I agree. Love is hard work, not magic. There's no secret formula. There's no right person. It just takes a certain amount of chemistry and then working your ass off. Being honest about who you are and what you want and hoping for the best. The magic part comes later, at least in my experience. Magic, eh? I poke her in the arm. Is that what they're calling it these days? She flushes red. I didn't mean like that. Rory asks if we're absolutely sure things didn't happen that way in the book. It positively didn't happen that way in the book. I stand up and the twirling twits in the corner stop talking and stare. Instead of making each other stronger, Star and Sabian hobbled one another, sort of like Zell and Jason, practically joined at the hip. So before either of them tells you, yes, I said that, I think you are making a terrible mistake. I think you're just like that book. I think you couldn't face real life here and you're running away. Who wants to work at a glorified zoo, cleaning up unicorn shit every afternoon? It's not like it smells nice or glitters in the sun. I guess you think this is the way you're going to salvage your marriage. You think you owe Jason because he never stopped looking for you. You think he owes you because you got knocked up. He thinks he owes you for healing his sight. Love and friendship, for that matter, isn't a game of reciprocity. You act like you have things figured out just because you're a few years older than the rest of us. But just because the two of you chose to be together at 17 doesn't mean that you have to choose to be unhappy for the rest of your lives. You've completed your pages. You're free now. I envy that freedom, Zell. I don't want to get married. It feels like a waste of time, opportunities flying past while they plan the sham of a wedding. I chose William because if I'm being forced to do this, at least it's to my friend on my terms. That said, if you miss my wedding, I swear on my own glass coffin, you'll be dead to me and your stupid unicorns too. B.
0: Mm, Thank you for sharing that. I want to talk a little about form. And um, because as we talked about earlier, you know, this book is written as a series of letters. And it isn't um, every day that you come across a novel written in letters. And you mentioned sort of your inspiration for it. But I'm curious how uh, your work in writing uh, speculative fiction um, has come into playing with form. And um, I'm wondering if you could start by defining what speculative fiction is for listeners who might not be familiar with it.
1: Sure. Um, Speculative fiction is a broad, broad ranging umbrella which uh, encompasses everything from your traditional high fantasy uh, narratives uh, like Tolkien and um, uh, the like uh, your your C.S. Lewis sort of Narnia Chronicles um, and then uh, also science fiction so uh, anything uh, like your ian banks and uh neil stevenson um those sorts of books um and everything uh that is in between um now we are seeing a lot of steampunk which uh is sort of a, a newish genre um, everybody is very uh familiar with the urban fantasy paranormal romance uh, genres that are uh you know inspired and, you know, propagated by the, the twilight ish sort of, uh, craze. Um, there are also smaller, uh, genres, uh, that start to ebb and touch onto, you know, the, the broader contemporary or even literary scenes, um, you know, genres such as magical realism where, uh, it is accepted by everyone in in the novel uh so you you have a a normal contemporary setting but something magical is accepted as true by everyone participating Mm. um and uh so there are a lot of, of smaller overlap sort of things that are getting new names and terminologies all the time but um I like to think of speculative fiction as the fiction of the imagined. That reminds me of kind of a a neat uh, piece of sort of information I got at a workshop, which was um, science fiction uh, is sort of uh, for those of us who are, you know, optimistic uh, and, you'll see a lot more science fiction coming out during times when, you know, society is more optimistic and you'll find a lot more fantasy coming out when uh, people need more of an escape. So, um, I found there was parallels in my own life to that. Uh, you know, writing fantasy when I needed an escape was certainly, uh, certainly something I found myself doing. um, you know, mostly my speculative fiction work has been uh, in, in short stories, um, and I have experimented quite a bit in form, um, some of it even venturing into things like trick writing. I I wrote one piece uh, that was, I wrote each paragraph uh, starting with a letter of the alphabet, and nobody ever caught it, but like, I knew that it was there.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: I think you know we have to do some of that for ourselves uh, you know to make to make it entertaining um, I have worked a lot with um, I really enjoy uh, you know non non-traditional formats I, I wrote a recipe a recipe story once um, you know I've, I've written things in in timelines and uh, in lists and I, I really enjoy working you know outside of you know the traditional format not that I don't ever write in traditional format I do but
0: Mm. and I think also there's something really exciting about playing with form uh both as a writer and trying new things and um you know even if we're looking at a story telling it uh in different ways in different forms to see really what fits that story but also as a reader to discover these new formats and think about our world and experience these stories that people are writing and sharing in new formats ways that we might not think of um i know for myself when i come across something that's in a form i wouldn't necessarily expect um I'm always delighted because it's both fascinating to think about how did someone choose this form to tell this story but also to think about how I can return that to my own writing. Well what if I what if I tried this you know what if I tried writing something in the form of letters or um, you know what if I told an essay in as a list? Um, So I think it gives us so many more options. And as really as writing and literature changes and shifts, more and more people are not coming from an MFA background. They're not coming from sort of the traditional school of writing. And we get even more interesting forms and ways because we're not coming from those places of having been trained about the right way to write. Yes.
1: And I think, you know, there's such exciting things going on in the literary community around welcoming those narratives. I wrote a piece for the magazine Cartridge Lit. They are a wonderful magazine that is welcoming literature, uh, either inspired by or based upon video games. And for a certain number of us, uh, there has never been a time without video games. Mm -hmm. So it is, you know, it is another reference point that we can come into telling a story uh, using that as a framing device. Um, I wrote a piece about the death of of my grandfather, um, you know, using text prompts. Um, that you would put into a video game, mm. uh, which, again, was a really interesting experiment and in form and yielded something that was far more meaningful than it would have been had I written a traditional, you know, grieving narrative, which, not that I'm dismissing that, but, I mean, I think part of the reward of being a creative person is finding new entry points to tell stories uh, where you know we can surprise one another um, because you know you <laughs> you read something like uh, these you know lists from editors of things we never want to see again and you know while that's true in some ways like I never want to, another story that has the word belly in it but like <laughs> i feel like um you know i never would want to put you know a sort of constraint like that on submitters because i want them to surprise me mm-hmm. with a story about something old but done completely differently and i believe that we all have that capability as writers
0: hmm Absolutely. I'm curious the best advice you've ever received.
1: The best advice that I've ever received. I think the best advice that I've ever received is also some of the toughest, uh, which is um, that no matter where you are in your writing journey, uh, you need to think of it like a ladder, um, and there are people that are above you on the ladder, and they have things you want, um, and some of them will give you a hand, um, a hand up the ladder, and there will always be people below on the ladder, and it's it's your job to you know extend your hand, um, and people will move on the ladder at different speeds and that is out of your control
0: mm.
1: and that the only way that you can control where you are on your personal ladder is to get your ass in the chair and write and um, that has been uh, sort of a a metaphor that I, I keep in my pocket.
0: <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. well- it's been so wonderful to have you on the show. Before we go, I want to give you a chance to share a little bit of wisdom with uh, listeners who might be interested in, you know, pushing the boundaries of form or exploring new ways of telling stories.
1: I think the most important thing that we can do for ourselves as writers is give ourselves permission to step into the empty space, um, if you can dream of a new way to tell a story, then there is the only thing between you and doing that is is you. And so I think writers, sometimes we aren't careful with ourselves. Uh, we demand this sort of perfection at all times. And, you know, we kind of bump around each other acting like we, we sort of know what's going on. The truth is that none of us do. <laughs> Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows how to navigate uh, what's next, uh, no matter where you are on that ladder. And um, chances are, if something is nipping at the corners of your mind. If that thing wants to be told, tell it. Tell it in a new way. Give yourself permission to do that. Give yourself permission, even if it fails. Um, I cannot. Uh, I cannot tell you how many you know failed forms that I have tried on uh, various uh various projects with letters to zell um you know i probably started and stopped just the way that i was approaching the letters five or six times before i finally settled into really what i wanted to do and um i think allowing ourselves you know giving ourselves permission to try giving ourselves permission to fail and um Really listening to the narratives that want to be told, and I think it's maybe stephen king who's who said that you know it was it's the ideas that haunt us, those are the ideas that we we need to chase. so I would say that if something is is haunting haunting you uh, give it give it a chance
0: mm, Absolutely. It has been so wonderful to sit and talk with you. I am so grateful that we connected uh, first on Twitter and um, that we could share this time together.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Sarah, and for finding my orange shoes at AWP. And uh, I have so enjoyed the time also. And, uh, boy, I can't wait to hear the rest of, of what you've got lined up. This is such a wonderful program you've started.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. And if listeners want to learn more about you and your work, they can find you at CamilleGreep.com. You are listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in-her-room.com, you'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air. Next week on In Her Room, we'll talk with D-Girl, writer, and media goddess, Lori Sheer. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together.